The Christian faith was first brought to Japan in 1549 by St. Francis Xavier, one of the original Jesuits. However, eventually the imperial regent of Japan, Toyotomo Hideyoshi, grew suspicious at the growing throng of converts among his people. There were probably around 300,000 Japanese Catholics by the end of the 16th century. Hideyoshi felt that Christianity was a threat to Japan's traditional social order, and so he banned foreign missionaries, and he began persecuting the church. Probably some of the most brutal persecution that the church had experienced since ancient Roman times. And this persecution gave the church the gift of many martyrs, both native Japanese as well as European missionaries. Foremost among them, Paul Miki and his companions, the original 26 martyrs of Japan. Once the Western missionaries were killed or banished, Japan engaged in a centuries-long retreat from contact with the outside world. The Catholic Church in Japan went underground. Having no ordained priests, the only sacraments these surviving Catholic communities could confect for themselves were baptism and marriage. Yet for hundreds of years, completely separated from contact with the Christian world, the Japanese Catholics continued to celebrate valid baptisms and marriages. They also carried on the prayer of the church, conducted funeral rites, and kept the liturgical seasons of Advent, Christmas, Lent, Easter, and Pentecost. Thus, in 1850, when Japan was again opened to trade and interaction with the Western world, the Japanese emperor initially allowed priests to enter the country and construct churches, but so long as they were only for the use of foreigners, not for the Japanese. But one of the things that the priests found was as soon as they built a church, some Japanese would secretly approach them claiming to already be Catholic. And these foreign priests were amazed to see that the Japanese Christians had carried out the Catholic faith as fully as they could without access to the priesthood and to the sacraments that depend upon holy orders for over 250 years. But what's really interesting is that the Japanese Catholics had their own tests for the priests. Their ancestors had been told by the last missionaries that they, that they had had contact with that when Christianity returned to Japan, there would be three marks by which they would know that these missionaries that they encountered were authentic Catholics. Now, these were not some highfalutin theological concepts, such as the ability to explain the Trinity or to know the Nicene Creed. They were instead far more immediately practical. The first was that they were loyal to the Pope in Rome. The second was that they would have statutes and images of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the third, and this was the most important because it was the hardest to fake, the priests would be celibate. Today's Gospel reading follows the climax of the Bread of Life discourse. Jesus has announced that his body is true food and his blood is true drink and that the Jews will have to eat his flesh and blood in order to have eternal life. Even Jesus' own disciples said, this saying is hard, who can accept it? Maybe they were hoping that Jesus was just speaking in a metaphor, as he had done in other contexts. But Jesus doubles down and tells them that he means exactly what he said. 
does this shock you? Meaning, I know this is hard to accept, but you have to accept it nonetheless. And the only help he can offer the credulous is two things. One is that you are going to see me ascending to heaven, meaning that if you see me return to the Father, then you can certainly believe that I can come to you in flesh and blood in the Eucharist. And the other thing he offers is this. It is the spirit that gives life while the flesh is no avail. Meaning you can't judge this by the puny power of your own reason. You can't ask if this makes sense, if by that you mean common sense. Because of course it doesn't. This is something supernatural just like Christ's resurrection as an ascension is something supernatural. If you are not seeing this through the eyes of faith, if you are only looking with the eyes of flesh, you are not going to see anything at all. It's the spirit that gives life. And then in the second reading, St. Paul is telling husbands and wives that they have to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the sacrament of marriage. Wives are told to subordinate themselves to their husbands, and husbands are told to sacrifice themselves for the sake of their wives. Both spouses are told to give themselves over fully to each other, in different ways, of course, because many men will live with a woman but not really sacrifice for her. That was the dominant image of marriage in the pagan world. The woman sacrificed herself to her husband, not the other way around. And many a woman will share her life with a man, but not really respect him and acknowledge his authority as a husband. So St. Paul is taking aim at both of those weaknesses, telling men and women that you have to die to self. Each spouse has to die to themselves and live fully for the other. This is the mystery of Christian marriage, that it is in microcosm the image of Christ and his church that sacrifice and obedience can be united together, that the two can become one flesh, just as sacrifice and obedience were joined together by Christ on the cross. So these three things, priestly celibacy, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and the sacrament of marriage, what do they have to do with each other? Sadly, these are the three things that are most quickly jettisoned when someone or some group breaks away from the Catholic Church. Certainly, we see that in the Protestant Reformation, but it goes back even before that. There were, during the Middle Ages, many heretical movements and sects that tried to split from the Church. And almost all of them had in common the rejection of celibacy, the true doctrine of the Eucharist, and the indissolubility of marriage. Why? Why these three things? Why are these the stumbling blocks? I think because as our Lord discovered when he told the disciples that they really did need to understand him literally, that these three things demand an immediate practical kind of assent in our lives. Belief in these three things means that instead of a remote shadowy kind of faith about things that happened in the Bible 2000 years ago, we have a living active faith. One that says that the God of scriptures is present and active in our world today. To believe that the sacrifice of Christ is made present each and every time we attend mass, or even any time we are in church, because we are in the presence of the sacrament because it's reserved in the tabernacle. That our Lord is truly present among us. 
To believe that priests and religious can truly give up the good of marriage and family in this life because they are living their lives as the sign of the eschatological kingdom. Or to believe that a husband and wife will look upon each other not as mere man and woman, but as images of Christ and the church, and that their marriage will endure until death no matter what. The world, given the chance, will try to flatten that away. You could say that the history of modernity, beginning with Protestantism, is the attempt to run away from these three things. You can read modernity as essentially an attack on the ideal of celibacy, on the permanency of marriage, and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So instead, ordained ministry simply becomes a job requiring no intrinsic sacrifice. Marriage becomes a contract, voidable when the pleasure runs out. And the Eucharist becomes a mere symbol, a ritual. Because ultimately, our modern age has no room for a living God. And these three things are the foremost signs that as Christians, we subordinate the world to our faith, not the other way around. That we don't live by earthly signs and expectations. Joshua challenged the Israelites. Stand with your God or go back to your false idols. We face the same choice in our times. I guarantee you that the only way that there will be a revival of the Christian faith in our country, in our culture, in our time, will, will be because we recognize the truth and the value of the permanent commitment of marriage, the value of celibacy, and about the reality of Christ in the Eucharist. Otherwise, we might as well just give up now. These three things are the signs of eternal life. We have no other place to go. Decide today where you and your household stands.